Chapter Thirty of Opening a Chestnut Burr by Edward P. Rowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Thirty, Kept from the Evil. With the light of the following day, Annie gave up all hope of her father's recovery. He was sinking fast and conscious himself that death was near, but his end was like the coming into harbor of a stately ship after a long, successful voyage. He looked death in the face with that calmness and dignity, that serene certainty that it was a change for the better, which Christian faith alone can inspire. His only solicitude was for those he was leaving, and yet he had no deep anxiety, for his strong faith committed them trustingly to God. Annie tried to feel resigned, since it was God's will, but the tie that bound her to him was so tender, so interwoven with every fibre of her heart, that she shrunk with inexpressible pain from its sundering. She knew that she was not losing her father, that the worst before them was but a brief separation, but how could she, who had lived so many happy years at his side, endure even this? It seemed as if she could not let him go, and in the strong, passionate yearning of her heart, she was almost ready to leave youth, friends, lover, and all to go with him. She was one who lived in her affections rather than her surroundings. The latter would matter little to her could she keep her heart treasures. It would have touched the coldest to see how she clung to him toward the last. All else was forgotten, even Gregory, who might be dying also. The instinct of nature was strong, and her father was first. Moreover, the relation between this parent and child was peculiarly close, for they were not only in perfect sympathy in views, character, and faith, but Annie had stepped to the side of the widowed man years before and sought successfully to fill the place of one who had reached home before him. Though so young, she had been his companion and daily friend, interesting herself in that which interested him and thus he had been saved from that terrible loneliness which often breaks the heart even in the midst of a household. It was therefore with a love beyond words that his eyes rested most of the time on her and followed her every movement. She also had a vague and peculiar dread in looking forward to her bereavement. An anticipating sense of isolation and loneliness chilled her heart. Though she would not openly admit it to herself, hunting had disappointed her since his return she did not get from him the support and christian sympathy she expected she tried to excuse him and charge herself with being too exacting and yet the sense of something wanting pained her she had hoped that in these dark days he would be serene and strong and yet abounding in the tenderest sympathy she had expected words of faith and consolation that would have sustained her spirit fainting under a double and peculiar sorrow she had felt sure that before this his just gratitude like a torrent would have overwhelmed and destroyed gregory's enmity but all had turned out so differently instead of being a help he had almost added to her burden by his hostile feeling toward her preserver which she had not been able wholly to disguise such a feeling on his part seemed both unnatural and wrong he professed himself ready to do anything she wished for gregory but it was in a half-hearted way to oblige her, and not for the sake of the injured man. When she went to him for Christian consolation, his words, though well chosen, lacked hardiness and the satisfying power of truth. Why this was so can be well understood. Hunting could not give what he did not possess. 
of necessity there would be a hollow ring when he spoke of that which he did not understand or feel during his brief visits and in his carefully written letters he could appear all she wished he could honestly show his sincere love for her and there was no special opportunity to show anything else in her vivid loving imagination she supplied all else and she believed that when they were together or in affliction he would reveal more distinctly his deeper and religious nature for such a nature he professed to have and his letters which could be written deliberately abounded in christian sentiment self-deceived he meant to be honestly religious as soon as he could afford to give up his questionable speculations but when a man least expects it the tests and strain will come that clearly manifest the character of his moral stamina it had now come to hunting and though he strove with all the force and adroitness of a resolute will and though he was a practised dissembler he was not equal to the searching demands of those trying days and steadily lost ground the only thing that kept him up was his sincere love for annie that was so apparent and honest that loving him herself she was able to forgive the rest but it formed no small part of her sorrow at that dark time that she must lower her lofty ideal of her lover hunting and gregory seemed nearer together morally than she could have believed possible thus she already had the dread that she would not be able to look up to hunting as she had expected and that it would be her mission to deepen and develop his character instead of leaning upon it it seemed strange to her as she thought of it during her long hours of watching that after all she would have to do for hunting something like what poor gregory had asked her to do for him she prayerfully purposed to do it for the idea of being disloyal to her engagement never entered her mind unless men have a christian home in which their religious life can be daily strengthened and fostered they cannot be what they ought she said to herself in continual contact with the world with nothing to counteract it's not strange that they act and feel as they do thus she was more disposed to feel sorry for both hunting and gregory than to blame them and yet she looked upon the two men very differently she regarded hunting as a true christian who simply needed warming and quickening into positive life while she thought of gregory with only fear and trembling her hope for the latter was in the prayers stored up in his behalf but now upon this day that would ever be so painfully memorable she had thoughts only for her father and nothing could tempt her from his side hunting also saw that the crisis was approaching and made but a formal semblance of a breakfast he then entered the sick-room and was thinking how best to broach the subject of an immediate marriage when a thumping of crutches was heard in the hall miss eulie entered and said that daddy tugger had managed to hobble over and had set his heart upon seeing his old friend certainly said mr walton he shall come in at once caution him to stay but a few minutes warned annie miss eulie helped the old man in and he sat down by mr walton's side with a world of trouble on his quaint wrinkled face but he said abruptly as if he expected an affirmative answer you're getting better this morning you're on the mend yes my kind old neighbor said mr walton feebly i shall soon be well it was kind of you in your crippled state to come over to see me well now said mr tugger greatly relieved there is use of praying i ain't much of a hand at it and i didn't know how the lord would take it from me but when i heard you was sick i began to feel like prayin and when i heard you was gettin wuss i couldn't help prayin 
when I heard how that city chap has saved the house. What an old fool I was to cuss him when he first came. The Lord knew what he was doing when he brought him here. When I heard how he kept the ladder from falling on Miss Annie, I prayed right out loud. My wife, she thought I was getting crazy, but I didn't care what anybody thought. I've been praying all night, and it seemed as if the Lord must hear me, and I kinder felt it in my bones that he had. So I expected to hear you say you was going to get well, and Mr. Gregory, he's better too, ain't he? There was no immediate answer. Neither Miss Eulie nor Annie seemed to know how to reply to the old man at first. But Mr. Walton reached slowly out and took his neighbor's hand, saying, Your prayers will be answered, my friend. Honest prayer to God always is. I shall be well soon, never to be old, feeble, and sick any more. I'm going where there's no more pain. Perhaps I've seen my last night, for there is no night there. But the Lord knows I didn't mean nothing of that kind. We need you here. He oughter know it. What's the use of praying if you get just the opposite of what you pray for? Suppose the opposite is best. I'm an old man, a shock of corn fully ripe. I'm ready to be gathered. Are you going to die? asked the old man in an awed whisper. No, Mr. Tugger, I've been growing old and feeble. I've been dying for a long time. Now I'm going to live, to be strong and well, forever and ever. So don't grieve, but rather rejoice with me. The old man sat musing a moment, and then said softly to himself, This is what the scripture means when it tells about the death of the righteous. Yes, continued Mr. Walton, though more feebly, and the scripture is true. The dear Lord doesn't desert his people. He who has been my friend and helper so many years now tells me that my sins, which are many, are all forgiven. It seems that I have also heard him say, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Tears gathered in Daddy Tugger's eyes, and he said brokenly, The Lord knows I've allers been a sort of well-meaning man, but I couldn't talk that way if I was where you be. Mr. Tugger, said Mr. Walton, I'm too weak to say much more, but I want to ask you one question. You have read the Bible. Whom did the Lord Jesus come to save? Sinners, was the prompt response. Are you one? What else I be? Then, old neighbor, you are safe, if you will just receive him as your Savior. If you were sure you were good enough and didn't need any Savior, I should despair of you. But according to the Bible, you are just such as he came after. If you feel that you are a sinner, all you have to do is trust him and do the best you can. Is that all that you did? All. I couldn't do anything more. And now, good-bye. Remember my last words. Whom did Jesus come to save? Why, he come to save me, burst out the old man, rising up. What a cussed old fool I was, not to see it afore. I was allers thinking he came after the good folks, and I felt that no matter how I tried, I could not be good enough. Good-bye, John Walton. If they are going to let sinners into heaven, who are willing to come any way the Lord will let them come, I'll be your neighbor again for long. And with his withered bronze visage, working with an emotion that he did not seek to control, he wrung the dying man's hand and hobbled out. But he pleaded with Miss Eulie to let him stay. I want to see it out, he said. For if grim death ain't going to get one square knocked down now, then he never had it. I want to see the victory. Pears to me that when the gates open, the glory will shine out upon us all. 
so she installed him in Mr. Walton's armchair by the parlor fire and made him thoroughly at home. I'm a-waitin' by the side of the river, he said. I wish I could go over with him. Here's I'd feel sure they wouldn't turn me back then. Jesus will go over the river with you, she said gently, and then they can't turn you back. I hope so, I hope so, said this old childlike man, for I'm an awful sinner. After this interview, which greatly fatigued him, Mr. Walton dozed for an hour, and then brightened up so decidedly that Annie had faint hopes that he was better. The children were brought to him, and he kissed and fondled them very tenderly. Then, in a way that would make a deep impression on their childish natures, he told them how he was going to see their father and mother, and would tell what good children they had been, and how they always meant to be good, and how all would be waiting for them in heaven. Thus the little ones received no grim and terrible impressions at that deathbed, but rather memories and hopes that in all their future would hold them back like angel hands from evil. Hunting now believed that the time for him to act had come. He had told Jeff to have the horse and buggy ready so that he might send for the old pastor at once. He came to Annie's side and taking her hand and her father's, thus seeming a link between them, said very gently, very tenderly, Annie, your father has told me that it would be a great consolation to him to leave me in charge of you all as his son, legally and in the eyes of the world, as I feel I am in reality. I could then do everything for you, relieve you of every care, and protect with unquestionable right all the interests of the household. Again, the marriage tie, like that of our betrothal, consummated here at his side, would ever seem to us peculiarly tender and sacred. It will almost literally be a marriage made in heaven. I hope you will feel that you can grant this, your father's last wish. Annie felt a sudden and strong repugnance to the plan. In that hour of agonized parting, she did not wish to think of marriage, even to one she loved. Her thoughts immediately recurred to Gregory. She felt that such an act might, in his weak state, cause disastrous results. And yet, if it were her father's wish, his last wish, how could she refuse him? How could she refuse him anything? the marriage day would eventually come. If by making this the day she could once more show her filial love and add to his dying peace, did she not owe him her first duty? The dying are omnipotent with us, who can refuse their last requests. She looked inquiringly, but with tear-blinded eyes, at her father. Yes, Annie, he said, answering her look. It would be a great consolation to me, because I can see how it will be of much advantage to you more than you can now understand. It will enable Charles to step in at once as the head of the household, and so you will be relieved of many perplexities and details of business, which would be very trying to you, as you will feel. I want to spare you and sister all this, and you have no idea how much it will save your feelings, and add to your comfort to have one like Charles act for you with such power as he would have as your husband. After seeing you all thus provided for, it seems to me that I could depart in perfect peace. Dear father, said Annie tenderly, how can I deny you anything? This seems to me no time for marriage, but since you wish it, your will shall be mine. It must be right, or you would not ask it. And yet... She did not finish the sentence, but buried her face in her hands, weeping. That's my noble Annie, Hunting exclaimed, with a glad exultation in his voice that he could not disguise. And hastening out, he told Jeff to bring the minister as speedily as possible. 
Miss Eulie was called, and acquiesced in her brother's opinion, and hovered around Annie in a tender flutter of maternal love. Hunting now felt that he was the master of destiny, and in his heart bade defiance to Gregory and all his own fears. His elation and self-applause were great, for had he not snatched the prize out of the hand of death itself, and made events that would have awed and disheartened other men combined for his good? He had schemed, planned, and overreached them all, though in this case for their interests as well as his own, he believed. While he would naturally wish the marriage to take place as soon as possible, his chief reason was to forestall any revelations which might come through Gregory. And this motive made his whole course, though apparently dictated by the purest feeling, a crafty trick. Yet such was the complex nature of the man that he honestly meant to fulfill all Mr. Walton's expectations, and become Annie's loving shield from every care and trial, and a faithful guardian of the household. Nay, more, as soon as he was securely entrenched with all his coveted possessions, he purposed that Annie should help him to be a true good man, a Christian in reality. Well may the purest and strongest pray to be kept from the evil of the world. It lurks where least suspected, and can plot its wrongs in the chamber of death, and on the threshold of heaven. Annie and her father might at least suppose themselves safe now. Were they so, with God's minister on his way to join truth with untruth? A pure-hearted maiden to a man from whom she would shrink the moment she came to know him? Not on the human side. They were only safe as God kept them. If Annie Walton had found herself married to a swindler, hers would have been a lifelong martyrdom. But unconsciously she drew momentarily nearer the edge of the precipice. Time was passing, and their venerable pastor would soon be present. Annie had welcomed him every day previously, as he came to take sweet counsel with her father rather than prepare him for death. But now she had a strange secret dread of his coming. Her father suddenly put his hand to his heart. "'Have you a pain there?' asked Annie. "'It's gone,' he replied after a moment. "'They will soon be all past, Annie dear. How does Mr. Gregory seem now?' he asked of Miss Hewley. "'Greatly depressed, I'm sorry to say,' she answered. "'He knows that you are no better, and it seems to distress him very much.' "'God bless him for saving my darling's life,' he said fervently. "'And he will bless him. I have a feeling that he will see brighter and better days. I can send him almost a father's love and blessing, for he now seems like a son to me. Say to him that I shall tell his father of his noble deeds. Be a sister to him, Annie.' Carry on the good work you have so wisely begun. May the friendship of the parents descend to the children. And you, Charles, my son, will surely feel toward him as a brother, whatever may have been the differences of the past. Innocent but deeply embarrassing words to both Hunting and Annie. Again Mr. Walton put his hand to his heart. Hunting left the room, for it was surely time for Jeff to return. With a gleam of exultant joy he saw him driving toward the house with the white-haired minister at his side. He returned softly to the sick-room. Mr. Walton had just taken Annie's hand, and after a look of unutterable fondness said, "'Before I give you to another, while you are still my own little girl, let me thank you for having been all and more than a father could ask. How good God was to give me such a comfort in your mother's place!' dear father was all that annie could say even then the minister was entering the house 
i bless thee my child the father continued then turning his eyes heavenward he reverently closed them in prayer saying and god bless thee also and keep thee from every evil god answered him his grasp on annie's hand relaxed without even a sigh he passed away annie started up with a look of alarm and saw the same expressions on the faces of her aunt and hunting they spoke to him he did not answer hunting felt his pulse its throb had ceased forever the chill of a great dread turned his own face like that of the dead miss eulie put her hand on her brother's heart it was at rest annie stood motionless with dilating eyes watching them but when her aunt came toward her with streaming eyes she realized the truth and fell fainting to the floor just then the old minister crossed the threshold but hunting said to him almost savagely you are too late end of chapter thirty